What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O Group, and I am uh, here hosting the What to Know podcast. I have the luxury of actually doing this interview in the home of our guest today, uh, Jory Jory Desjardins. I'm trying to make her name sound completely French all the way across. It sounded sort of French. It was sort of French, right? Um, Many of you probably have heard of her. Uh, She's an entrepreneur, co-founder of BlogHer, which may be where you've heard her name before, and uh, most currently a board of directors member of SheWorks. We'll talk a little bit about that during our interview, but uh, welcome, Jory, and thank you for having me in your house today. Thanks for having me on your show. I think this is the first time, and she has a beautiful house. I won't say where in Oakland for her privacy, Um, but we are sitting here, and it's a sunny day. Perfect. It is perfect, and we have the door open, and uh, so anyway, you couldn't ask for a better environment. Uh, I do want to start back at your beginnings. Um, I believe you went to college and uh, majored in English and journalism. Clearly, the way you came out of the gate certainly reinforced that. But um, let's talk a little bit about you know Penguin, uh, a couple of niche publications. After that, you know your job as an editor at something called the New York Times and uh, Time Inc. Um, you know how did those early days shape who you are today? Well, I left college in a state that I like to say, jokingly, um, as completely unmarketable. I wanted to write the great American novel and did not really understand how college played into that, but had to go. So when I left, I thought, great, I'm just going to go to a publisher and uh, have a career through osmosis, which is basically by virtue of being around a lot of editors, maybe they will pick up a book of mine and learn that it was actually a lot harder than that. And I learned a lot about the commercial trade of publishing. It's not just about writing, it's also about selling. And that was the first exposure I had as a lit major to the business of content. And I would say that the, the, the benefit of having been at the Times and at Time Inc. so early in my career and knowing full well that I wanted to get out of the corporate world shortly thereafter was that I brought into my editorial, uh, I should say my entrepreneurial side, um, this appreciation for real content. The content business has changed so much and so much is shifting. We see so uh, many changes in the media world right now, but no matter what, content will always win. And having an appreciation for great content, being around great journalists, seeing the best content made and being in the business of that, I think has only made my abilities to to emphasize great content all the better. Even even in a shifting tech-driven market right now, it's all about the content. So I agree, and I'm going to ask you a little off of our interview question. Um, is there too much content out there today? It feels like you know we have not enough attention, and, and there's so much of it today, and some of it's exceptional and some of it's not so exceptional. So as someone that has started in a more formal setting and has gone all the way through, and we'll talk more about this with Blogger and beyond, you know, are we drowning in this, and what's the solution to that? I do think we have too much content, but I also think we're in a shakeout. And we are now experiencing the the fallout of enabling anyone anywhere to be a publisher, which was 
a wonderful thing. I know that as a writer, I had very few options. I could write for Mademoiselle and basically work my way into a job where I could write for a women's magazine and get to know editors and, and, and play up that way. Or I could create my own platform and become known for that and write exactly what I want to write right off the bat. And that was so appealing to me. And that's a large reason of why I started, co-founded Blog Her. But now we're in a place where everyone can publish and it's made a lot of um, issues around signal and noise. And as part of this shakeout, we're seeing it now with ad blocking and with all of these um, sites that have been so dependent on crap content because they just wanted to monetize something and not necessarily quality that I think we're going to start to see businesses go away. I think that subscription models are going to be where it's at. I pay for all of the content that I read on a regular basis now. I just realized that actually. You pay for it either with your eyeballs or your wallet, right? And you're right. choosing your wallet, I think, in I most cases. chosen my wallet. I didn't realize that. And then I looked at, I was looking at my credit card and I said, wow, this is the content that I read consistently. And I think that is our, how we vote now is I'm willing to pay for that content, so I'm reading that content. Well, and I'd argue, without getting political, that this most recent election and then sort of following that and this concept of fake news has probably steered a lot of us back in that direction. At a minimum, if not paying for content, at a maximum of being more discerning about the voices we trust and about doing a little more validation. And so, you know, if there are... Um, silver linings that we could take away for some of those, you know, who I know were a little disappointed, then I think that maybe having that bright, you know, reliable, trusting content shine through is is a good outcome. I will say I am just as guilty as the next person of having clicked on the dead child celebrity features that are at the bottom of every web page that I'm viewing. Uh, but now we're done. And I think that it's only a matter of time. And we're now more aware of it than before. It was kind of a sh shiny new object and something to, to check out. And the public at large, I don't think everybody, I don't think crap content is going to go away. But I think that the public at large is now at least used to the notion of paying for quality content. Yeah, and that maybe everything on the internet isn't true, right? Yeah, Which perhaps. is a good epiphany. Um, so you touched on one of the things that, you know, I did want to get into blog her because I remember, uh, you know, this is probably a dozen, you know, not quite a dozen years ago, several years ago, becoming aware of this phenomena that was happening. And clearly, you talked about the great content. And um, I, I know that part of your passion, just because of how I've got to know you recently through Steph Agresta and just hearing about you, is you are very passionate about female founders and entrepreneurship. And you're doing a lot with that today. And we'll get to that in a minute. But what, from your early days, like what was that point where you realized, not only do I want to create a, a um, ecosystem that features through events and, you know, the blog and all that, but really understood like this was a passion area and, and I'm sure many women have that passion area in them, but you acted on that and you acted on that strongly to create this amazing network. So talk a little bit about what, what did that journey look like for you? Sure. So the business model came much later, but I had been out in San Francisco for a number of years. I left for a startup wanting to explore and try new things. And I left New York city, left the publishing world and I think I was out here maybe two and a half years when my startup went belly up, just like every other startup. And the only jobs that were available for someone like me was uh, the 
porn sites, really, at that point. For an English major, there was no other content that was actually selling. And I remember all of these sites dying and everyone had a pink slip and we all were hanging out uh, on Fillmore Street. Just what are you going to do next? I don't know. What are you going to do next? And that was around the time that I started blogging because I had nothing else to do. I had um, some gigs I was consulting and I started writing again and I refound my voice and was so addicted to the experience of writing and connecting with others in ways that I had never done before. Before, if I wanted to connect, I had to hopefully get a magazine editor to agree to publish my stuff. And then it wasn't really my stuff. It had been written and rewritten. And I don't even know what this voice is that they use in women's magazines, but it wasn't mine. So the idea of being able to publish something in a, in a voice that I was close to and that people could resonate with was so addicting to me that I knew whatever it is, I'm going to figure out how I can continue to do this. Really, Blogger was an extension of my own selfish desires to do what I loved. And how do we enable other people like me to do that too? And I happened to meet two intrepid people of like minds, Lisa Stone and Elisa Camelhart Page, who were very much in a similar place. They were freelancing, um, doing contract work while exploring their passion for blogging. And a question had come up in the blogosphere at that time, which almost seems silly when you think about it. There was an article that was written, I can't remember now, Lisa would remember, but uh, a writer had said, where are the women bloggers? Because he was basically bemoaning um, on our behalf, apparently, how few women were involved in blogging. And we thought that was laughable because we had this, this underground community of women that we knew and connected with already who were addicted to the experience. We just weren't in the Technorati 100. So the question we wanted to answer was, here we are, and what really matters? How do we want to show up in this space? So Blogger was a way for us to do that. And it was a community before it ever became a business. We started the event. We really wanted to celebrate all of the reasons why we were blogging, not just tech or business. In fact, the first groups that came to Blogger, I remember a contingent of knitting bloggers. This was back in 2005, and this was a thing. Um, all kinds of groups were there, and we realized, how do we represent what we all are interested in and connect us to opportunities so that we could do this as our gig, if we so chose to do that as our gig, and grow our platforms? So you ultimately ended up selling. Yes. And uh, I'm sure you still stay in close proximity with some of those folks, and we'll talk about you know your more recent activities, but do you ever you know miss that aspect, or do you feel like you've replaced it with some of your current activities with Virago and SheWorks, which we'll talk about in a minute. I feel like I've taken the things that I missed the most from Blogger and brought it into my current life. One of the things that was a, a chance project that we did uh, maybe five, six years ago was something called Blogger Entrepreneurs. And really it was a way for Lisa, Elisa, and myself to give back to the community that had given us so much. And when I say community, I mean women, female founders, and, and actually male business leaders who gave us great advice early on. We were not in a place initially to grow a company. We didn't know we wanted to grow a venture-funded company. And we got some great advice and great support. And we thought, well, there gotta be other people like us. What kind of advice do they need? What kind of support do they need? So we created this event, very small, Blog her at the conference, the annual was 5,000 people. This was 100. And it consisted of 50 women who were either thinking of building a business 
or who were in the process of building a business and 50 mentors. And I'm talking about women who had reached the highest echelons of their career, who were willing to come by and for one hour sit down with a solo entrepreneur and just hear her out. I couldn't believe we pulled that off. And I, um, it's more a testament to these women, actually. But I recall sitting in the room and watching these women connect with these other women. And some of these entrepreneurs were just so completely overwhelmed and grateful um, and, and moved on to build their businesses. There are businesses that are still around today that really germinated at Blocker Entrepreneurs. So when, when I left She Knows after spending a year with, uh, She Knows was the company that acquired Blogger, I thought, okay, how do we perpetuate that? That was one of the highlights that I never anticipated from Blogger. And that's when I teamed up with Steph Agresta, who was a longtime Blogger friend. She was my friend even before, as I was building Blogger. And we had a very similar goal of helping female founders on the one hand, but also helping women who were on the other side of the spectrum, who were experts or who had already exited and wanted to give some of that expertise back. And we're looking for opportunities and great women to connect with. How do we do that? And that was why we created the Scale Collective. That's great. And so the Scale Collective, I think, was part and parcel with Virago, right? Which yes. is sort of the shell of your what you were going to do next. And I was lucky to attend your first Scale Collective back in New yes, York, I think, were. last fall. Um, an amazing event. And I think at a similar field to the blogger entrepreneur mm-hmm. uh, event where you did have a lot of very amazing women as well as entrepreneurs. I actually got a chance to speak to one of them and heard her pitch, which was pretty cool. Um, and then recently, I think actually two weeks ago, if I remember correctly, you and Steph announced that you were not selling, but you were sort of bringing your assets to the SheWorks uh, table and you were both joining the board in a meaningful way. And so let's talk for a few minutes about that. And then I'd love to shift gears to, you know, your most recent interaction with us at South by Southwest and some of the lessons that I took away from that, which I, I really felt were powerful. Yeah, Sure. So uh, after the event, we were inundated with requests from female founders wanting help, wanting more resources. I had set up, Steph and I kind of divided and conquered at that event, and we brought in 50 experts and advisors who were sitting one-on-one and in some cases one-to-few with entrepreneurs, and we set up 80 meetings with VCs and with uh, angel investors, platforms, numerous types of investors, as well as with these, these advisors. It was quite an undertaking. And we found that after that, entrepreneurs were saying, okay, I got my second meeting, now what? What do I wanna do next? And the question came up for me and Steph, what do we wanna do? Do we wanna create a business? And I had just left a company that created a huge huge event and I knew it was not a small undertaking and so I was struggling with that question wondering what is the next step and I know Steph really loved aspects of what we were doing but wanted to see it grow and become global so at the same time uh, a woman who had attended the event by the name of Jerry Stengel who uh, is a fantastic writer she writes for Fortune uh, came up to me and said hey I want you to meet these two intrepid founders um, Yin and Lisa who are the founders of SheWorks. I met Lisa first, sat down with her, and really I didn't know what to do about this. I just said, sure, I'd love to meet any entrepreneur. But I realized as we started talking, this was a group of of women who had 
so much alignment with what Steph and I wanted to create and they were doing it. These, they both remind me of me when I first started my company and the energy and the can do itness and everything that we've suggested, they've either tried already or are, you know, halfway done with it by the time we we've done suggesting it. So smart and really, really felt strongly about providing women with their options. They didn't want to create a demo, a tech opportunity like um, so many of the ones that you know about now, right? Which are great, but women don't necessarily, by and large, want to demo. They want to have real conversations and they really want to understand what the expectation is for the revenue there, or I should say the, um, the capital that they are asking for. So they created a very similar model where you can sit down with investors and learn your options before you pitch. And I loved that. And they had such a good handle on, on the, the, the problems that a lot of these entrepreneurs are facing that I said, we have to figure something out. And that's awesome. That's a nice segue into this talk that you and uh, Jan Ryan, uh, who's a uh, serial entrepreneur, you don't even need to mention women, but uh, she has actually successfully started and sold several companies. Um, You two spoke at our Movers and Shapers event in Austin. And one of the things that I loved about that was you talked a bit about some of the unique challenges that uh, women face as founders and entrepreneurs. And I think there was a bigger conversation we were having around the fact that I think at the very least the US, and I know Northern Europeans did this probably several years before us, are waking up to the fact that diversity, including you know women being leaders, uh, you know gay, straight, whatever, different colors, that diversity was good, having different opinions. But there are challenges, and particularly it's a little bit of that men are from Mars, women are from Venus effect. Uh, and you guys sort of hit it head on and talked a little bit about some of those unique challenges. Can we do like a quick redux of some of the things that you guys covered at the event? Sure. Well, I think about the feedback that I got from VCs and from attendees at the Scale Collective and took away some of those lessons for for that panel. And one of them, uh, an intrepid, another intrepid uh, female founder had come up to me after the event and said, thank you so much for the opportunities. I learned so much, but um, good and bad. And I asked her about that. She found that uh, investors were not as keen to want to invest in her because of her technology. Um, she had basically been a, a media person for most of her career and got amazing press, had an amazing concept. And I'd say her innovation was her ability to develop a concept and develop sponsorship around it. But it was the technology that that she would get hung up on. She found some developers who created the problem she wanted to solve, but it didn't check boxes of AI, VR, think of all of the, you know, all of the new technologies that investors are, are currently putting money into right now. And that was a struggle for her. And she said, I'm just trying to solve a problem. How do I address that? And I don't know if she needs to address it. I do think though, that, that entrepreneurs need to understand the expectations of VCs and VCs should also understand that there ain't nothing wrong with solving a problem, right? It's not just about the technology itself. It's about what you're doing with the technology and using it wisely. So that was one thing. I think another thing, and this comes from uh, some feedback I got from an investor who had met with five entrepreneurs, one one by one, uh, back to back. He had amazing feedback. He said, 
I was struck by how honest these entrepreneurs are, were. And I said, well, what do you mean? <laughs> why, why wouldn't they be honest? And he said, oh, I'm, men aren't honest about this stuff. They give me the, the best case scenario when we're having a conversation. He goes, I know it's, it's BS, but, but I also expect that kind of language. And he didn't say this, but I think he was also saying in many ways, implying that maybe it would benefit these entrepreneurs to think about their moonshot and actually feel empowered to talk about the moonshot. While it's great that they're honest and he found it refreshing, they also need to talk about the the 40,000 foot goal and not just think about where they think they might be able to get to next month. Because I think that all things being equal, they're hearing a very different story from male entrepreneurs who are seeking funding. Yeah, it was a great session. And by the way, I think in this podcast, we'll link to the video of you and Jan so uh, people can hear it for themselves. But I know that I heard from a bunch of folks, both internally, as well as clients and, and attendees that they really appreciated the session that you all did. So um, thank you again, belatedly for that. Uh, shifting gears a little bit, and this is the part where I, I try to do with all of my guests, and that is, you know, who's influencing the influencers? So I'll make it a two-part question just so that we can, you know, wrap up in the next few minutes. Um, I'd love to know who is inspiring you or maybe has inspired you over the course of your career. And then I'd also like to look at, and this is one where I'm helping to selfishly build my own library, um, is there a business book that you've read recently or maybe one that sort of continues to inspire you that we can share with listeners? So I have been influenced lately by a group of women. I joined a, a networking group when I left my company called High Power, and I didn't like the name at first. I thought it was too in your face, but these women don't apologize for much. And the, the premise behind the group is it's for women who have achieved some level of something, right? Maybe you've reached the C-suite in your company. Maybe you've sold a company, but you are all asking questions of your legacy. Okay, I've done this, I have this on my resume, but what do I wanna accomplish with my life? And when you're in a room of women who have all achieved something, and it's very different, it's amazing to see the range of, of, of accomplishments. And some of these I could never imagine myself doing. There are some quants in that room and, and the brains in that space are, are unbelievable. And I was, by the way, during the year that I joined them, I was the only entrepreneur. So I think that there was a little bit of, of something there that I could contribute as well. But I learned from them so many things around, uh, you know, we talk a lot about women helping women and right, raising all boats, but also you need someone to call you on your shit. And I have never been around a group of people who, who brought me up so much and let me see the possibilities, but also when I said something that, that suggested otherwise would call me on it and say, you know what, y you can do better. And it's a rare thing to get. I think um, we need it. I think that we get it at certain levels and then we don't hear it again. And then we wonder why we can't achieve certain things. So I appreciated, and um, this group in particular, my friend Joanna Bloor and Mona Sabet, who had started the group, are women who influence me. If I had to pick today who that is. And then um, my business book. 
So I have a, a friend that I met while I was at Blogger. She was on the agency side named Dana Middleton. And do you know Dana? I do know Dana. Oh, wow. She spoke at our event, I think, three years ago. Yep. She did, and but I actually saw her there. Yeah. Yes, so she was working on a book on the book at the time. Well, now it's out, and it's called Grace Meets Grit. And at first, I'll confess, when she was telling me about the premise, I'm like, oh, gosh, this is another Mars and Venus situation, right? I'm going to read this and think, okay, here's all the things I can do to be more like a man. And it wasn't that at all. It was really identifying from a scientific standpoint the differences in how women think and how men think and how very often that can lead to certain collisions in the workforce. And very similar to what I espouse with the Scale Collective, she espouses not changing anything, but just being aware of this dynamic and being proud and being accepting of, of having more of one or more of the other. Grace, of course, being more of the feminine traits and leadership and grit being more the male. And understanding that there may be points where you should be adding more grit to the grace and places where you should be adding more grace and really seeing where they can benefit each other um, and showing real examples. And I hadn't really looked at my, my work situation that way before, but now I apply it everywhere I go. I see it all the time because there are women who are gritty and there are men that are graceful. And sometimes I ask, well, what is it about that person that is so effective? And I'm looking at it through that perspective now. And I feel like it's made me a more effective and I'd say well-rounded leader. I like that. And uh, I always like it when it's, you know, someone that we know that we can bring up and celebrate a little bit. So we'll make sure that we give a little shout out to Dana when, uh, when we do publish this. Um, last question, and this is the fun one, not that the others haven't been fun, but a little less business oriented. Uh, I always like to kind of get that personality of someone. And I find that this is a question that sort of helps draw that out of people. Um, theoretically imagine you're on a desert Island and don't worry about the fact that, you know, where would the power come from? But you have one album and I think I even caveat in this cause I did a couple interviews recently where I didn't caveat that it shouldn't be a greatest hits and ideally not a compilation. Although I can let you break the rule if you want to, because you're such a nice person. Um, but what would that be and why? And remember, that doesn't have to be your favorite album, because I think that sometimes our favorite albums aren't the ones that might be the most interesting over time to us. Well, and I'm not the most loyal person. I go through periods where I like something and then I like something else and I like something else. You know, I hear about people who love the Beatles and will listen to them forever. I would probably like the Beatles, be into them go for something else and then go back. So this was, it's a tough question, but I think it would be on the radio by Donna Summer. I love it. Yeah. Well, would you like to know why? I, that's, okay. That's the best part is um, knowing so, the album is good. Knowing the why <laughs> is the best. Well, first of all, it, I remember being at a meeting and looking up, they had a, they had CNN on the TV in the, in the lobby and seeing that Donna Summer had died and I just about lost it. I'm like, oh my God, I have to get into my meeting, but I'm losing it right now. Donna Summer was the first, uh, was the first artist that my mother gave me when I had, um, we had a turntable of course, and that was my first record. And now of course you can get a, a song and you can play it with other songs, right? You mix and match and you may not like the whole album, but I didn't have a choice. My mom would put it on and you couldn't take the needle off because I was only six and six-year-olds shouldn't be playing with the record player. So I listened to that album 
over and over and over again. And it was just my first entree. And now I see that whenever I hear a song from Donna Summer, I just have, it's more of a nostalgia thing. Plus, I think she was an amazing singer, an amazing performer. Yeah, no, those are some great criteria. And it's funny, as you're saying that, just as a final thought, um, I was in the same scenario where my dad actually loved music. And so I remember my first albums, which were part of his collection, were things like Paul, Sim- you know, Simon and Garfunkel, Paul Simon, you know, Beatles, Jimi Hendrix, so very eclectic. And I remember, um, you know, sitting and listening on the turntable to all these songs and eventually evolving into my own music. But still to this day, like Dolly Parton was one that he loved to listen to. And when I hear something like that, it's like it brings that rush of memories back. So uh, I really like that as your choice. I'm so glad you did. Of course. But you didn't guess it was going to be that, though. You know, I'm surprised more often than not by some of the choices that people make. Um, Chris Satchel of Comcast, who I did one of my first interviews with, two of his three, because he couldn't just pick one, were albums that I absolutely adore. And he was not a guy, and like he and I have bonded over music since then. He was actually at the dinner with his wife that you uh, attended uh, during South By that we we, uh, hosted. So anyway... Thank you so much, Jory. Uh, This is Aaron Strout, the CMO of W2O Group, the host of the What to Know podcast. And uh, we've spent the last 20 plus minutes with Jory Desjardins. I said that a little less French on the first part. Um, She's an entrepreneur, the co-founder of BlogHer, Virago, and the board of directors member of SheWorks and just a general nice person. So thank you. Thank you, Aaron. Want more episodes of the What to Know podcast? We post a new episode every Thursday. Check them out on iTunes, the podcast app, and the podcast page at w2ogroup.com backslash what to know.